We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 2 today. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 5, in which God presented a vision for the last days, the the end of the human history, uh, a time in which all peoples of the world streamed to God and to his people to learn from them. And so it was talking about uh, the exaltation of God and people coming in to know him and to learn from him. This week, we're going to see a very different picture of the end times. Uh, so let's look at the verses. We're going to look at ch- verses 6 through 22. It's just all the way through the end of chapter 2. And uh, let's look at the verses first, and then we'll go back and talk about what they mean, what they meant to the people who heard them back then, and then, of course, what they mean to us today. So beginning in verse 6, it says, You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan. For all the towering mountains and all the high hills. For every lofty tower and every fortified wall. For every trading ship and every stately vessel. The arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. People will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, people will throw away to the moles and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in mere humans, who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? If we said that chapter 1 of Isaiah was like a courtroom drama when God accused them of a crime and then adjudicated it in front of witnesses, Chapter 2, the second part of chapter 2, is almost like a medical drama. God begins with a diagnosis, then he offers a cure, a treatment, and then a prognosis. What's going to happen as a result of God's intervention? And the diagnosis was pride. He begins, You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They're full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. So he's saying the people are wandering without God. He said they're full of superstitions from the East. So they've brought in these um, 
false gods from lands to the east. And then it says they practice divination like the Philistines. The Philistines were from the west. So uh, Isaiah is saying they're incorporating this magic and divination and superstition from basically all around the world. Seven says their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. And their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So he says there are four things here that are emblematic of their sickness. The superstitions and magic, that's one. The love of money, silver and gold. Love of power, the horses and chariots, that, that's military strength. And finally, idols. They're making their own gods and worshiping them. So how how are these four things related to each other? They're all examples of pride, a bad kind of pride that refers to a self-reliance that says, I don't need anyone because I have everything that I need. So the magic and superstition says, I am self-sufficient. I don't need to fear nature or the future because I have this magic that I think will somehow stave off disaster. The silver and gold that's trusting in their wealth the horses and chariots trusting in their military power to protect them. And lastly, the idols. It's the strangest thing because they're putting trust in the idol that the idol will uh, intercede on their behalf like a god. But this idol is a thing that they've made. It's almost themselves, them telling themselves, we can make our own gods who then will rise up to protect us. So all four of these things are pride and self-reliance. Now, language is a weird thing. Sometimes a word can mean one thing, and it can mean the opposite thing at the same time. We call word pairs like this, they're called contronyms, because they mean the opposite at the same time. A good example is the word fast, which can mean to move very quickly, or it can mean to not move at all. So if you say hold fast to something, or I to fasten it, it means it doesn't move. Or the word oversight. So congressional oversight means that the Congress is looking carefully and watching it. But if you say, I forgot something, it was an oversight, it means I wasn't looking carefully. Or the word clip. A clip can mean to, uh, something that holds something in place, or it can mean to cut something away. Pride, in some ways, is a word like that. Pride can mean something good, but it can also mean something bad. There's a good kind of pride. When we say take pride in your work, it just means do a good job. Um, Self-reliance can be a good thing, like not waiting for a handout or waiting for people to do things for you, working hard, taking care of yourself and your family. Uh, the Bible doesn't necessarily use the word pride for this, but that, that's the English word that we would use for this. Um, but it does teach the concept. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, this is Paul writing there to the church, and he's telling people that they need to work if they expect to be fed. He says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They're busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food that they eat. So a good kind of pride or a good kind of self-reliance says, I'll take what God has given me and I'll work hard to do something good with it. And when I succeed, I can be pleased with the result. That's not sinful. But there's a bad kind of pride also. 
A bad kind of pride says, no one has given me anything, and I don't need anything from anyone. Within myself, I have all that I will ever need. You remember when uh, Jesus called the disciples together for the Last Supper, one of the things that he did was he took a bowl of water and he set about washing the disciples' feet. And when he came to Peter, Peter said, in John 13, he said, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. He wasn't going to let Jesus do something for him that he thought he could do for himself. But Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, Peter could very easily physically wash his own feet, but that wasn't what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was showing a physical symbol of washing away sins. And that's something Peter couldn't do for himself. And then Peter was like, ah, then not just my feet, my head and hands wash everything. So the kind of self-reliance that says, I don't need anyone. I could do it myself, everything myself. I don't even need God. This is the kind of self-reliance or pride that God condemns. In Revelation, Jesus speaks to the church of Laodicea and says, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jennifer Ferner, uh, an author writing at HuffingtonPost.com, wrote an article called titled, I'm not blessed, I'm an atheist, and I don't need God to give thanks or to show gratitude. And one of the quotes in her article, she said, since I've cut God out of my life, I have so much more room for everyone else. And later on, she says, and since I've given up God, I feel more satisfied being the best person I can be for me instead of following anyone else's instructions for living. So she thinks that by getting rid of God, she's free to be a good person all on her own. But she might reject it. But the truth is that it's God's existence that allows her to know that there's such a thing as goodness. And it's God's goodness flowing through her, an atheist, through that spark of the image of God that remains in her that allows her any desire to do good at all. But on the day she stands in judgment before God, none of his goodness is going to count as credit to her account. All that will remain is the pride the self-reliance, the ingratitude. This is the kind of pride that God condemns. Now, this is exactly where the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem were. They had wealth, prestige, powerful allies, and a long history in which the God of all creation had intervened to create and sustain them. They didn't need anything, and God was lucky to have them. That was their attitude. So the diagnosis is pride, and God then tells the people through Isaiah what he's going to do to cure them. He's prescribed a humbling for them. In verse 9, it says, So people will be brought low, and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled, and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, 
For every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So he's prescribed a humbling event for them. He says that he has a day in store for them, a day that he's picked out. And on that day, the people of Judah would be humbled. Now, Isaiah and the other prophets refer again and again to this day. They call it the day of the Lord. And here Isaiah gives the characteristics of that day. God's presence would appear, but in terrifying wrath, not in mercy. There would be a fear that caused people to hide. And everything that Judah trusts in, her allies, her wealth, her trade, her foreign gods, would all be shown to be worthless. Now, this very much happened to Judah in history. Remember, we said that this prophecy probably took place when Ahaz was king. Things were at a low point then. And when his son Hezekiah took over, there was a revival. But the revival wasn't a deep revival, because when Hezekiah was gone and his son Manasseh took over, the people and the king went right back to their idolatry. And then when Josiah came along, there was a revival again. But after him, it just sank further and further into a rejection of the Lord. So after about 130 years, the Bible tells us in multiple places, but once in Jeremiah 52, it says, it was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. So Jeremiah describes this humbling event. He says there was a rebellion. The Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, besieged Jerusalem for two years. And it says in verse 6, By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. The wall of Jerusalem was broken open, and the army and the king fled. They tried to run from the city, but Nebuchadnezzar's men chased them down, caught them, and he took the royal family and had their sons killed in front of King Zedekiah's eyes, and then had Zedekiah blinded. And then it says, The commander set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian guard, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. It seems harsh, but what would the effect of this humbling be? Well, let's look. He said that the result of the treatment would be an end to Israel's infatuation with idols. Verse 19, it says, And the idols will totally disappear. People will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, people will throw away to the moles and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns and the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? So he said, 
that this would be a cure to their idolatry and the running away. And in fact, it turned out to be true. When they came back from exile from Babylon 70 years later, they no longer had a problem with idolatry. In fact, they were so opposed to idolatry that the king who was ruling them a couple hundred years later, a man named Antiochus, he hated God and he actually went into the temple and offered a pig as a sacrifice there to, I think, to Zeus. It so incensed the people, this idolatry, that they kicked Antiochus's men out and they fought a war successfully against the most powerful person in the region. And uh, this is where the story of Hanukkah comes from, when uh, they didn't have enough oil to uh, rededicate the temple and light the lamps, but they did it anyway, and the oil kept burning and burning and burning. Uh, they hated idolatry after this. So God took some rather dramatic efforts to cure them of their pride, but it worked. But this should show us just how important humility is and dependence on him. Pride, or maybe we should say pridefulness for clarity, caused Judah to rebel against God and decide to go their own way. It was pride in the beginning that caused Satan to fall. He said, I will ascend to the heavens. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. It was pride that caused Adam and Eve to decide that they knew better than God in the Garden of Eden. It was pride that made the religious leaders of Jerusalem decide that Jesus had to be killed lest he upstage them and all the people follow Jesus instead of them. When I was a new Christian, one of my mentors said that the two worst sins were pride and fear, because every other sin flows out of one of these two. Every way in which people hurt others and reject God can be traced back to pride and fear. And pride is much more insidious than fear, because pride disguises itself, even in the church. Pride can be disguised as a desire for God's glory, sometimes... Uh, we want unbelievers to know that God is real and working in our lives. So maybe we upsell just how happy we are and downplay the real struggles that we're going through or the sins that we're struggling with. Or maybe we very carefully curate a presentation of our lives on social media that paints a far more flattering picture than the reality. Or maybe we're concerned that people at church have a genuine experience of God's presence so that we obsess endlessly about the details and the smoothness of a service, maybe to the point that we're irritated then by a crying baby or a battery going out on a microphone or missing a note in the worship. That attitude, that on the surface looks like a desire for God's glory, is really saying that God can only be glorified through me and my happy life and the technical expertise of the church. Remember, God brought glory to himself by allowing an enemy nation to come in and burn his temple. I don't think he will have any trouble bringing glory to himself amidst your imperfections. In fact, when Paul asked God to take away one of his failings, God told him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So take joy in how God is able to bring glory to himself despite our weaknesses because that shows him to be an even greater God. Sometimes pride masks itself as a desire to work hard for God. Sometimes we jump into volunteering and helping because we think no one else will do it quite right, or maybe no one else will do it at all, or maybe it's just easier to do it myself than to get someone else. This does two things. One, 
it starts to get us in the mindset that God needs our work. He doesn't. We are privileged to be able to share in his work, but he doesn't need any of us to do it. But two, it also takes away opportunities to serve that God might be singling out for other people to help them grow and mature. So the body of Christ is made of many parts, and sometimes a very useful hand needs to get out of the way and let other parts of the body do their jobs too. Thirdly, pride can sometimes mask itself as humility. When we say, I'm just the worst, I'm so terrible, everybody must hate me, everybody must be so disappointed in me. What do pride and excessive negativity have in common? An excessive focus on yourself. I'm the best and I'm the worst are cousins, not opposites. Paul was a man of deep humility who recognized his own sinfulness and his failings, and yet he said in this regard, but here is the one thing I do. I forget what is behind me. I push hard toward what is ahead of me. So, less focus on the self and more focus on God. And fourthly, this is not a way pride hides itself. It's just a way that pride shows up. Pride sometimes shows up as prayerlessness. If pride is the disease, then one of the symptoms is a lack of a prayer life. Have you ever had the feeling that you're just so busy and have so many things to do that there just isn't enough time to pray? I know I've had that feeling and thought, and I'm sure I'm not alone. The thought reveals, though, that we're thinking deep down that our hard work is more useful than God's, and jumping into our work will get more done than asking God to work on our behalf. This is often the case when we think about people we love that don't know Jesus. We rightly think about what we should say and when and making sure we don't say too much, but we often spend much less time in prayer for the person than we do in prayer for the we spend much less time in prayer for the person than we do thinking about how to interact with them in a way that will bring them to salvation. Martin Luther, when he was asked what his plans were for the following day, once said, work, work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. So when we're facing one of those upsurges of pride, there are some solutions, and they all involve not thinking as much about ourselves, but instead thinking about him. So when we focus our eyes on God and less on ourselves and how great we are or how ter terrible we are, it is a, uh, a treatment for our pride. Secondly, when we think about others, not thinking about what others think about us, but looking at others and their needs and finding Christ in others and serving him there. And finally, there's a comfort. One and two require us to do things. God, however, will humble every proud thing. It's in his nature. Everything in the universe will be placed beneath the feet of Christ. So as Christians, we can rejoice in the fact that he will come in and humble us, whether we ask for it, whether we look for it or not. And when it happens, we don't have to be resentful or angry. We can rejoice that he comes in to humble us of his own accord, even when it's painful.